Welcome to Conversations on the Coast, the Bay Area's premier author interview program. And today's a day of joy and celebration and happiness for the host because one of his favorite authors has deigned to stop by once again. Her name is Julia Glass, and the book she's yakking about now is her latest novel, which is called And the Dark Sacred Night. Hi, Jim. Hi. Gosh, it's good to see you. It's good to see you, too. For those people who don't know or don't remember, probably, Julia Glass is the author of Three Junes, which won the 2002 National Book Award for Fiction. She's also written a book called The Whole World Over. Another one, I See You Everywhere, which won the 2009 Binghamton University John Gardner Book Award. I hope that was had some money attached to it with a long title like that. Well, it, it, it did have some money attached. Good. You know, John Gardner, that's really cool. To yeah, have that's an award good. with that's John good. Gardner's name on it, that's yeah. really cool. And a, a book that uh, I remember that we did on this show, The Widower's Tale, mm-hmm. which, which I liked very much. Oh, and she's written essays. She's been anthologized. She's received fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York Foundation for the Arts, and the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies. But the most important thing is she's still a very, very good writer, whom I think in this book shows that you can always get better and you can always sharpen the tricks and deepen the insights. That's what happens in this book, in 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 my opinion. Starting with the uh, starting with the source of the title, and the dark sacred night comes from that wonderful chestnut, the song by Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world! I see skies of blue and clouds of white. The bright blessed day and the dark sacred night. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Doesn't it always bring tears to everybody's eyes? Just about, I think. (laughs) I think you can tell if someone's an android because they have no tears in their eyes when they hear that song. (laughs) That could be. That could be. Now, one of the the, the things that was fascinating to me about this book when I got it in the mail and the publisher sends stuff with it, they have, you know, they have to describe it quickly. They have to get a, a sentence in there. And and uh, the sentence describes something that seems too simple to be, to be interesting. In this richly detailed novel about the quest for an unknown father. Quest for an unknown father. Well, you know, you have one of the characters in the book, a very minor character, uh, with a name that sounds like Lorraine? Lorena. Lorena, yeah. She says, hey, everybody's doing this. <laughs> everybody's <laughs> looking for their roots. Every, and then you, you, you should know about this, she says to her boss. Right. And uh, I, I, I kind of resonated there. I thought, yeah, I, I, I think that that character is right. But what this book gets into is everything that surrounds that quest, if somebody yes. goes on it. Yes. And, and 
it, it involves not just simply finding the parent, the child, whatever the case may be, but a whole world that exists that the person didn't know about. Right. Well, there were a number of things that led me to write this book, but one of them was that I wanted to write a quest story. You know, Sir Galahad, you know, Sir, or is it Gawain? Who mm-hmm. finds the Holy Grail? Mm-hmm. I can't believe I can't remember that. I wanted to write a quest story. And in any good quest story, the hero or the heroine always finds the object of that's the right. quest. But, yeah. Yeah. but that's not what ends up being the most important. It's what that person finds along the way. It's what happens along the journey that matters more than coming to the end of the journey. So does Kit find out the identity of his father? Yes. Uh, but it's the people with whom he uh, with whom he has encounters along the way. That's what sends him on the path beyond the answer to the mystery. As the reviewer in the Chronicle book section said a couple of weeks back, and, and The Dark Sacred Night is a quiet novel the way a modest rope of pearls represents the urgent efforts of two dozen oysters. Okay, Jim, can we talk about that sentence? Do you understand that? It is absolutely gorgeous. But Well, um, I had to I had to read it three times. <laughs> but that no, I mean the fact is that the the work of the oysters is very difficult. Well, I guess I'm focusing on the result. The result is a pearl necklace. Yeah. You know, that sounds pretty good, but um You didn't like I, the work of the oysters. <laughs> I don't know, but I really, I read that out loud to my partner. I said, what does this mean? Uh, What's so urgent about oysters? But anyway, yes, it was a review I was very happy to get. But now it goes on to get into something else that you do here. The intimate third person gives the more laconic New England characters the language they deserve without the usual clunkiness of alternating points of view. Now, the way I see that happening in in the book is that because, as we said, finding the parent is the end of the story, and the book is really about everything that happens on that that journey, Mm -hmm. that there's a lot of jumping around, present, past, future. And where you shine is that no matter what time you're going into, you have sentences that let me know as a reader exactly where you are, what's happening, and why it's important. That, I think, is handling time. You're listening to Conversations on the Coast with Jim Foster. Follow us on Twitter at JimFosterCoc or send an email to JimFosterCoc at gmail.com. And the Dark Sacred Night. That's the title of Julia Glass's newest novel, a title courtesy of the wonderful Louis Armstrong. And she's here on Conversations on the Coast to talk about it. And I and I, I, I want to go back to the Chronicle review mm-hmm. because it goes on to say um, the simple, almost obvious plot, which is what I was the point I was making at, at the opening that doesn't sound like much. The simple, almost obvious plot takes on the qualities of a thriller. And it does that through the quality of your writing. I mean, it doesn't happen automatically. 
Glass' aggressively non-linear approach is sophisticated and surprising. Her grasp of time shifts from present to past, even present tense to past tense, is so deft and so economical that even a parade of disappointed lives feels luminous. You did a good job here. I mean, and this Thank you. this reviewer got the point. Oh, they did, yes. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I, I would say a parade of disappointed lives is maybe a bit severe, but... Yeah, a bit. But there's a lot of grief and disappointment. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. And then a lot of hope. A lot of hope. And, and a lot of wonderful people doing the hoping. Worthwhile. Well, Worthwhile folks. Yeah. I mean, I've probably said this on your show before, but I think that all great fiction is about how we go on, how we endure. It's about human resilience. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there may be a lot of grief and sadness and tragedy, but um, but my characters always end in a hopeful place. If I don't kill them off, that is. One of the other things about this book, which is unusual, to me at least, is that in it, you uh, you use characters that come from another book. Mm-hmm. Did you ever do that before? Yes. Um, you know, the character oh, Benno McLeod. You know I did. You are, you well, know. I you, forgot. You have a PhD in my work. <laughs> <laughs> <Not quite. laughs> so, no, but Fenno McLeod, who is the protagonist of Three Junes, came back in my second novel, The Whole World Over, and he's back again here. But more importantly, the character I really, really wanted to bring back was the mother of Malachi Burns, who was the music critic dying of AIDS dying in Three Junes, yeah. Lucinda Burns. I loved that character. And. I had a hard time creating her, but I wanted more time with her. Once I had, I kind of fell in love with her. And she is, she's the linchpin to this novel, even though Kit Noonan, the the man in search of his father's identity, is the prime protagonist. You know, his his journey leads him to her, leads him to her. And then to Fenno McLeod, who's back. The time that we spend with Lucinda is a very hard time for her. Mm-hmm. Her, her husband's had a stroke and he mm-hmm. can barely speak and you write about what that means to her the changes in the ordinary things of, of life right well he's a very vital man he's a, a state senator in Vermont and he's felled by the stroke he comes home he's recovering but I think the key is when I start her part of the story she's he's coming home from the rehabilitation yes. center yes. and it takes her back to the time when her son was dying of AIDS 30 years before. Now, she does have two grown, successful children still, but the secret is, in her secret, is that Malachi, the son she lost, was her favorite child. And, and as she revisits her grief and her guilt over favoring him, she, you know, she relives that part of her life, but she comes through that again. And you see her with her other children, and you see her with her husband as he fights to come out of the state of disability that he's in. Beautiful stuff. Heart, very, very difficult, heartrending, I think. Well, you know what's so uncanny is in the middle of my writing this, my mother had a stroke. Oh. And she, through sheer will, she's an amazingly fit, determined person, she she brought herself back you know, 99% in about two months because she was so determined. So 
I was in the middle of writing this, you know, and when I went back and revised, some of what I saw my mother go through yeah. poured itself into this part of the story. Yeah, and, and made it more and more accurate. I think so. Sure, yeah. sure. There's a you, problem I have with, with your writing is I, I get captured by minor characters. <laughs> and I spent too much time thinking about them. And we already mentioned the woman in the in the store, uh, Lorena or whatever. Yes, Lorena. And there's there's another buddy of of Jasper's by the name of Rayburn. Yes, he's a radio DJ. Yeah, I think no that's wonder why I remember him. Right, huh? <laughs> right. But he's in a state of dementia. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, all all DJs are crazy anyway. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, again, the way you handle that, I mean, Jasper's relationship to him does not fall apart, does not deteriorate because his friend is in a somewhat demented state. Yeah. It endures. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I loved it. And Rayburn has, you know, certain observations that – he makes that that makes sense, even though he's always teetering on the edge. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you see him both in the back in flashbacks as this vital person, and then also as someone who is still very verbal but is not connected to reality, who has a lot of delusions. One of the toughest parts of the book, but I I think probably one of the most realistic, is the beginning of the book when. Uh, the, the the wife is trying to get this guy out of doing nothing and mm-hmm. and and and, inclu- and wanting to go search for his for his mother, mm-hmm. his father, right? Uh, his father. I'm sorry. I mean that nasty stuff. I mean she has she's put in a totally unenviable spot, and yet I think accomplishes what she wanted to. Mm-hmm. Does she turn out to be a hero? That is a really good question because some readers find her, you know, a ball-busting kind of wife who basically orders her husband out of the house onto this quest. And others see her as someone who provides the steadiness that this man needs. He's he's stuck in this depression, this malaise, um, this, un, you know, unemployed art historian at mm-hmm. home with his children. Mm-hmm. Um, Tough, yeah. She's determined to work him out of it. You know, while you're out there listening, you're saying, are you going to let Julia read from the book? And the answer, of course, is yes. I'm going to let Julia read for the book. You're listening to Conversations on the Coast with Jim Foster. Follow us on Twitter at JimFosterCoc or send an email to JimFosterCoc at gmail.com. Julia Glass is with us today to talk about her new novel. It's called And the Dark Sacred Night. And Booklist uh, says some good things about it that I want to share. They point out that woven through the narrative are flashbacks, including the tender and beautiful, the, the tender and beautiful told story of the relationship between Kit's mother and father. Glass explores the pain of family secrets, the importance of identity, and the ultimate meaning of family in this lovely, highly readable, and thought-provoking novel. Pretty good stuff. Pretty good stuff. It really is family Mm -hmm. throughout. I mean, the the big world out there 
that uh, Kit discovers is family. Yes. Not just his. Not just his. And I, and I can't let the program end without uh, sharing the thoughts from Marie Claire magazine. Skeletons pour from the closet in Glass Latest, which is cast with beloved characters from a National Book Award winning Three Jews. Skeletons falling out of the closet. It's almost like a zombie movie. Yes, yes. Hardly dignified enough for a National Book Award winner. I'll take it if it'll make people read the book. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I think that'll help people read the book is to hear you read from it. And uh, this is uh, toward the end of the book. And, uh, well, you can talk about the setting of it. It's toward the end of the book, but it's a flashback um, woven through the story of Kit searching for his mother. I, sorry, for his father yeah. um, is the story of how his mother became pregnant the summer that she was 17 and went home to Vermont to live with her parents in this small town and have that baby and raise it by herself. And I'm going to read a flashback from shortly after she had the baby and was adjusting to small town life. Great. Thank okay. you. She And she was... Uh, and she was a very gifted young cellist. So there's, right, uh, And right. her life has obviously been turned upside down by this baby. The town where she had grown up, where her mother had once taught first grade and her father's hardware store doubled as an alternate town hall, was small enough that once her news was out, the sequence of humiliating encounters Daphne had to endure, however endless they seemed at the time, were finite from her family doctor, a ghastly conversation about venereal disease, and her tactless brother, knocked up, whoa, to teachers and neighbors and parents' friends and the sales clerks she couldn't avoid forever in the shops where she still had to do her everyday errands. On and on it seemed to go, this awkward continuum of faked joy, hidden panic, Not regret, never regret, she would remind herself, at least not about the baby, and, from nearly everyone around her, thinly disguised pity. People were kind but distant. She almost wished somebody would go ahead and call her a slut. Now and then, she caught a certain glance exchanged by her parents, a glance whose meaning she wished she did not understand." Yet somehow, in nearly a full round of seasons, she had eluded the one chance meeting that she dreaded more than any other. Just when she began to think that maybe she'd be spared, maybe Mrs. Patton had moved away or even died, she was, after all, a gray-haired widow, it happened. Kit was a few months old by then. It was a mercifully comfortable summer day, not too humid or still, and Daphne was taking a walk through town a walk just for the sake of a walk, pushing him in his carriage, the same baby carriage in which her own mother had pushed her along the very same streets. She hadn't been paying much attention to people passing her by on the sidewalk. Often, when she could get away from the house, she would slip into vague daydreams, detailing Malachy's change of heart, their fates rejoined through his mother's intervention. So she had only a few seconds in which to absorb that the woman approaching her was Mrs. Patton. Mrs. Patton had been her first cello teacher, 
the woman who had seen and believed in her early talent, who had persuaded Daphne's mother to drive her three times a week to Hanover for expensive lessons with a more advanced teacher, who, in turn, had sponsored her audition for the camp. As soon as they received the acceptance letter, Daphne's mother had invited Mrs. Patton for dinner. She arrived with a congratulatory bouquet of daffodils gathered from her garden. After handing the flowers to Daphne's mother, she had embarrassed Daphne by grasping her hands and telling her, tearfully, I always hoped that one of my pupils someday would have a chance like this. You, Daphne, are my true musical daughter. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Uh, the fellow who, if one could name a, a hero in this book, in my opinion, would be Jasper. Jasper, yes. who took Daphne in, I would say. Well, fell in love with her, her and married her. Fell in love her. with her and, and married her. Uh, but he he's a, a wonderful New England guy. He is. He's a, he's a crusty outdoorsy um, guy full of integrity who built his own house, who drives sled dogs, teaches skiing, and he was a complete surprise to me. Sometimes a character just comes to me like a gift and just runs away with the story, and Jasper's definitely doesn't one he? of those yeah, characters. Yeah, and, and he does so many admirable things along the way. Not that he doesn't make mistakes and uh, and have a loss of faith in some things. Oh, yeah. He's... Oh, yeah. He's a complicated character, too, but a generous man, a man of, of deep heart. This is a book uh, that you're going to find a lot of characters that you'll like a lot and maybe not like a lot. Mm -hmm. and, and that's one of the great benefits of a novel by Julia Glass. This novel is called And the Dark Sacred Night, and it's published by Pantheon Books. This has been Conversations on the Coast, and I'm Jim Foster. Follow us on Twitter at Jim Foster COC or send an email to Jim Foster COC at gmail.com.